morning and welcome to Ice and Review. My name is Ragnar Thomas and today we'll be listening to staff writer Eric Pomeranke read I Will Dance Again, an interview with Icelandic writer Elisabeth Jökulsdóttir. Eric will also be reading three brief fictional pieces by Elisabeth, which were published alongside his article. I Will Dance Again. The House in Kveragerði. Elizabeth is already waiting for me as I pull into the parking space of her row house in Kveragerði. As I enter her new home, I offer to take off my shoes. But Elizabeth instead ushers me to her kitchen table and shows me her most recent acrylic paintings in lieu of an introduction. In colorful abstraction, they deal with isolation. Large blocks of color stand fenced apart in tessellated rows not unlike the development of row houses she now calls home. Elisabeth has recently moved here from Vesterbyr, Reykjavik's west side. The house she left there she had called home for some 30 years, or, as she cosmically describes it, for one orbit of Saturn. She bought that house with the profits from one of her first-ever works, Dans i Lohko de Herbergi, a collection of poetry dealing with childhood, mythology, and, of course, dancing. This was also when she started her own publishing house, Men, where she published most of her work. Having sold her first 500 books, she was able to get together a down payment. I was always writing more and more so I could pay off that house, she tells me. The house in Vestabair, with all of its memories, provides as succinct as any a curriculum vitae of Elizabeth's life. As she puts it, Everything happened there. I wrote all my books, raised my children, I went insane, I got sober, I ran for president, and so on and on. But Elizabeth had to sell the house in Vestabair in 2020 in favor of this one-story house in Kvergevi. For the past several years, her health has been declining, and she needs a living space better suited to her needs. As she sits on the sofa, she asks, So, you're here to talk about my kidneys. On kidneys and other matters. Like so many other writers, Elizabeth has lived with mental health problems for much of her life. Since she was diagnosed with bipolar 1, she has taken lithium, one of the most common and safe mood stabilizers. Prior to her lithium treatment, Elizabeth struggled to maintain balance in her life. Her first son was taken from her by the state. But when she became pregnant again at 26, she began to take treatment much more seriously. When she started attending therapy for bipolar disorder and taking lithium between 1999 and 2000, she noticed a change. Before, she says, everything in my career was a mess. You see it in my books, how I started publishing a book every year. It was like a superpower. Among the many works to emerge from this period are Vangjöhurðin, The Winged Door, a collection of love poems, and Íslands Thúsund Taur, Iceland's Thousand Tears, a drama written for the student theatre. Loive also originates from this period. The titular character, Loive, lives in the slums of Reykjavik, trying to care for her younger sister who dies. It is also a love story, albeit one in which the beloved is also a rapist. These themes of love and abuse, 
care, and neglect run through many of Elizabeth's works, and their narrative prevalence suggests a knowledge of these sides of life gained through experience. However, in 2017, something began to change for Elizabeth. She grew thirsty, incredibly thirsty, at night. Sometimes, she simply couldn't drink enough to slake her thirst, and would wake up in the middle of the night to drink liters of juice and water. She was also tired, often needing to sleep 12 or more hours a day. Clearly, something was wrong. Long-term exposure to lithium can cause damage to the kidneys and thyroid, and it is common practice in the medical field to perform blood tests regularly during lithium treatments. None of this was done for Elizabeth, and she was never warned of the potential complications of lithium. In fact, when she initially brought some of her symptoms before a doctor, she had even been told that the fatigue and thirst were in her head, a part of her bipolar disorder. Now, several years after the malpractice came to light, Elizabeth's kidneys function at 15%. I was very angry with the doctors. Of course, I hated them, she says. But I was so powerless. I didn't have any tools. I was told I couldn't do anything. The lawyers couldn't do anything. I was shocked. Everything crashed. I was hopeless, disappointed, angry. I thought I would die. Recently, however things have begun to turn around for Elisabeth. She has been placed on a wait list in both Sweden and Iceland for a kidney, and she relishes the notion of having a Swedish aristocrat's organ. Whether she knows the class of her future donor, or whether all Swedes are fat cats to her, I do not ask. Previously an outsider to the academic professional literary scene in Iceland, Elisabeth's work has also been increasingly recognized in recent years. Elisabeth has been awarded both the Icelandic Literary Prize, the Icelandic Literary Prize for Women, and her most recent novel, April Solarkulti, or Cold April Sun, was a well-received bestseller. She has also recently found a lawyer who has helped her open a lawsuit for malpractice against the state. Elisabeth, with the help of her new lawyer, has already won some money. But the battle isn't over and it's unclear when, exactly, she can expect her life-saving donation. Sickness and Health As one of the last true bohemians of old Reykjavik, Elisabeth has had quite a varied career. At various points in her life, Elisabeth has worked in journalism, housekeeping, teaching, restaurants, and Klepsbytali, the psychiatric department of Landsbytali. Health, both mental and bodily, has played a central role in Elizabeth's life. I was working in this clinic, but I felt so sorry for all the people, she tells me. I was reading the journals, and I found out that something had happened to them. The way of thinking had changed. That was an awakening to me, how their feelings had changed. How sad they were, extremely sad. Already when she was 21... Elizabeth was animated by a deep concern for those around her. She tells me how, when she worked at Klepsbytali, she found out that the staff were served a better breakfast than the patients. All they had was surmjölk. I didn't like that. I thought that maybe, if we were better to each other, we could be more sane, she says. <laughs> she didn't then dare to confront the hospital staff. Not then, she says. I was so young. 
One of the first published articles in a newspaper was about this small injustice. Later, I wrote an article about this, she tells me. So all the doctors, they would know that I know. Two selves. As a child, she helped her mother as much as possible. She would help with cooking and cleaning the house and help to take care of her siblings, Itlui and Hrap. When she was doing everything she was supposed to, Elisabeth felt like a hero. But there was another archetype she acted out as well, the bad girl, sometimes tormenting her siblings, seeking attention, causing trouble. These archetypes were not fully-fledged versions of Elisabeth, and she often felt caught between them, suspended in anxiety. There are no feelings in those roles, she explains. The anxiety, you hide it, there's no space for it. This anxiety, this gap between our two selves, has a name. For Elisabeth, it is her inner critic, the nagging voice that always finds something wrong, that wonders if she's good enough, if she writes well, if she's beautiful enough. Bipolar 1, sometimes referred to as manic depression, is often characterized by long periods of lows, interspersed with bouts of unusually elevated mood, irritability, and also productivity. Her bipolar disorder emerged only later into her 20s, but I find it striking how even from a young age, she felt this split, not between mania and depression, but these two childhood archetypes of hero and villain. And yet, there is a way of looking at Elizabeth's life that brings these two sides of her together, the hero, the critic, and the bad girl. In addition to her writing, Elizabeth has also been an outspoken environmental activist. She famously opposed the Kaurahnukar hydroelectric dam, a power plant in the Vatnajökull Highlands that required some 440,000 acres of wilderness to be flooded to power an aluminum smelting facility. On a domestic flight over the area of the then-proposed dam, Elizabeth seized the intercom system of the plane, delivering a speech on the damages caused by this megastructure in the wilderness. Who stood up that day to briefly hijack the intercom? Was this the bad girl, acting out for attention? The critic, always looking for the negative in the world, the ugliness, the things that don't add up. Or was it the hero, driven to sacrifice herself to care for those around her? In a sense, it was all of these. As Elizabeth has gotten older, she has learned to live with these characters. Now I know about them, she tells me. I try to tame them. But most of the time, I try to be the hero and take care of everything. But the hero never shows her feelings, so I never cry. But I'm not so tough. I'm actually very sensitive. King Boredom Elizabeth's health has also meant that she has had to be especially careful during COVID. I ask whether isolation has been difficult for her, and how she has managed to deal with this great personal crisis alongside the pandemic. I'm used to working alone, she says. I started to call people. I was always checking up with friends at the time. My phone has always been busy during these last years. Nevertheless, there's been boredom as well. I never get bored. I'm never boring, she explains, but during COVID, I was almost dying of boredom. Still, I love my boredom. I get my finest ideas then. I call him King Boredom. Boredom and silence are an essential part of Elizabeth's creative process. 
Not wanting to sound too stuffy, I suggest that this is maybe something that is changing, that social media and mass entertainment are taking away our ability to be bored. What do we lose when we are perpetually entertained? Elizabeth muses about some of the ideas that have come to her in her boredom, explaining how boring, terribly boring it was to stand in front of audiences, reading from her books. Once, I set fire to my book as I read it. When I put fire to that book, that came to me out of boredom, she says, as if it's quite natural. Standing there in front of everyone is so terribly boring, I came up with this idea to fight that. Still, boredom and emptiness pose dangers for Elizabeth, and she has learned to keep herself busy to ward off the darker side of things. I always have to take care of myself, Elizabeth says, but I know the mania and anxiety are always there, and it will take me if I'm not talking to people, if I'm not taking my medicine, not exercising. And yet, behind this lurking darkness lies a deep love of life. I love life so much, she says. I love the details in life so much. I love the everyday and the ordinary things and the higher meaning and everything. She pauses, continuing. I'm not responsible for this sickness, but I'm responsible for my cure. New Audiences Elisabeth has already published nearly 30 works and been translated into Swedish, Danish, French, Polish, and even Armenian. She is especially proud of this last translation, and we flip through the pages of her copy together, its alphabet as obscure to both of us as hieroglyphics. Some authors, I imagine, feel rather dizzy at the thought of being so widely read and translated. Translation always involves some loss of control, and some stories take on a life of their own, separate from the original text. Elisabeth, after all, started her own publishing company to have more control over her books, and she talks fondly of going to the print shop to pick out paper, designing covers, and immersing herself not just in the literary work, but also in the materiality of it all. Elisabeth, however, is giddy at the thought of being so widely read, and isn't too concerned about what her international readership may think, whether they have the right image of her or not. I can't control what image people will have of me, she says. I don't know what image they have, and no one has told me yet. Despite everything, things are going well for Elizabeth, and she feels that, except for her kidneys, she's never felt healthier. Still, sometimes the mania and anxiety threaten to surface. She remembers one of her worst episodes. I thought it was Mother Mary. I thought I could save the world. It was terrible. I danced naked in front of Parliament. Do you miss it at all? the dancing, I ask. I think I'll dance again when the time comes, she says, and smiles. Three Short Pieces of Flash Fiction by Elisabeth Jökulsdóttir Translated by Larissa Kaiser The Aliens and the Child Once upon a time, some aliens flew to Earth from an unknown star and stole a child who'd run away from home because her parents didn't notice her. When, many light years later, the child was returned to Earth, she was not a day older than when she'd vanished. But her parents were old and wizened by the fireplace. And when they saw the child lollygagging in the living room, they asked each other who that child was, and concluded it was probably one of the bloody grandchildren. The Little Girl Who Lived on Fish Hearts 
I once knew a little girl who lived on nothing but fish hearts. She had a bowl of goldfish and spent every day at home with her fish. Her dad and mom were always buying her more new fish because whenever they came home from work at night, she told them that this fish had died today and those three yesterday. When they asked the girl what she'd done with the dead fish, she said she'd buried them or thrown them in the trash. So they were always buying her new fish because she was by herself so much. But one time, when her mom was replanting all the flowers, she found a fish corpse in every last pot. After a rigorous interrogation, it came to light that the girl had killed the fish by cutting out their hearts and eating one heart a day. But when they asked her why on earth she'd do that, she didn't know why on earth she had eaten fish hearts. And so they put her in a children's psychiatric ward because she didn't have her reason. The Cigarette Girl, a story for Linda Wilhelmsdottir. This is a story about a cigarette girl. Whenever she got an arrow to the eye, a bullet to the heart, or a spear to the side, she pulled a crumpled pack of cigarettes from her back pocket, carefully shook one out, and lit it. Then she stood on the corner with a cigarette dangling from her lips, an arrow in her eye a bullet in her heart, and a spear in her side, and smoked with a dreadfully cunning expression on her face. In the end, her face got stuck like that because she was always smoking. Well, thank you for that, Eric. To begin with, um, I wanted to ask why Elizabeth Jökulsdóttir, why this interview at this time? Well, I mean, certainly uh, her most recent book, uh, April Solar Kulti, uh, has been well-received, and uh, she's also coming out with this new book, uh, Um So that is the timely aspect. I mean, for me personally, she's always just been this kind of fascinating figure, this last true bohemian to kind of romanticize it a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, I think that uh, it's maybe fair to say that in the modern art scene, um, you know, I mean, both in Reykjavik and just internationally, there's more kind of like a set path to becoming an artist. Uh, and, you know, that kind of involves like going to an MFA program, getting some sort of masters of fine arts, uh, whether it's in visual art or writing, um, you know, like there's this kind of um, academic, institutional, professional pipeline um, and that's kind of the way that you make a career out of writing, um, you know, but then the thing that kind of goes missing is, yeah, this romantic idea that we have of the author. And I think that like Elizabeth just per personifies that so, so well. And like, she, like she's really lived that life, you know, I mean, uh, we also just had this great conversation when we were talking about, um, you know, when she was younger, just kind of running off you know, to the wilderness, like I'm sure so many people who are artistically inclined think about or dream of, but obviously never do. Um, but, you know, I mean, she really did it and kind of just lived in some abandoned house in the West Fjords for like a winter. Um, and, you know, I mean, like really kind of roughed it and just like lived out there by herself. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's just so cool and fascinating. And, you know, I mean, like, like, like when you, I sat down and talked with her, I mean, besides all of the 
interesting intellectual conversation about her art. I mean, really the thing that I was left with is just having talked with somebody who has lived life fully. And I think that's the really kind of amazing thing about Elizabeth. So how do you think um, this aspect of her character translate in, translates into a work? Again, as I kind of uh, gesture towards in the piece, um, I, th- I think for Elizabeth, um, you know, she, like she's one of these artists uh, whose life and work are really just so closely intertwined. Um, you know, I mean, I briefly kind of talk about some of these things in Loewe, um, you know, that have to do with love and abuse and, I mean, yes, rape. Um, and, you know, I mean, to be able to kind of create art out of these experiences, I think is, I mean, really important, like for her personally and also just, you know, I mean, like very beautiful in a way. And I mean, I think that um, also for somebody, um, you know, that's kind of had a lifelong struggle with uh, mental illness, um, there's also maybe a unique way in which, you know, she was kind of doing this before uh, all of these things were kind of so in the discourse. Like now we're really used to just talking about these things all the time. Um, you know, I mean, like it's just kind of like, like it's almost this like everyday conversation that we have now um, about some of these uh, bigger issues, you know, I mean like mental health, um, abuse, things like this. Uh, like, like these are all things that we've kind of learned to talk about in public now, which, you know, I mean, obviously isn't to say that they're solved by any means, uh, but we talk about them. And I think that, you know, I mean, Elizabeth was kind of maybe finding out a way to talk about these things for herself, like before um, we really talked about these things together, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, And I was just curious, have you read many of her books, much of her work, and what do you think of her as a writer, per se? Um, well, yes, I mean, um, she, she, I mean, she has a really wide oeuvre. Um, I mean, as I say, she's like written nearly 30 pieces. Um, she has very distinct style. Um, I mean, and she's, and she's written on just a really wide variety of topics. I mean, she has, uh, this little kind of collection of, um, kind of short pieces of fiction about football, um, uh, that are kind of inspired by her sons uh, and their and, and and her sons' interest and also careers in football. Actually, um, you know, she also has you know more kind of experimental uh, fiction novels uh, that really kind of play with style and language and like really a kind of um, like modernist stream of consciousness. You know, I mean, so she's written like really kind of in wide, broad ways. Um, and, you know, so maybe for the reader, uh, or rather the listener, um, we could talk about these uh, three short pieces of flash fiction. Um, you know, I mean, clearly they're very surreal. Uh, there's this kind of fairy tale aspect to them. Um, I think that uh, a kind of common motif through them is childhood. I mean, like, th- like, like, uh, just girls kind of feature in them very heavily. Um, yeah, I mean, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about them. Yeah, there were two points that struck me. Um, 
one with the uh, the little girl who subsisted on fish hearts. <laughs> um, what I found most interesting about that piece was um, the reason the little girl is sent to the psychiatric hospital is because she's doing something that's um, obviously quite unusual and bizarre, but that's not why she's sent there. It's because she doesn't have a reason for doing it. And I think that's an interesting commentary on um, you know, us as human beings, that we do crazy stuff, but sometimes we give these very plausible, reasonable reasons for doing them, and, and so long as we have you know, some kind of rationale for our behavior, it's fine. But I guess that doesn't make the things that we do any less bizarre or crazy. I mean, you could rewind the clock by 100 years and you'd find a lot of things that we were doing that's just absolutely uh, ridiculous or, or not particularly admirable. But it was fine then because we had good reasons. So that was one of the points that struck me with that piece. I'm curious, did you... Did you read that the same way? What were your thoughts on that piece? Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly um, the sense that I get when I read these pieces is that, you know, I mean, like I said, there's something very kind of fairy tale about them. Um, and fairy tales, um, you know, are kind of steeped in myth. Um, and also myth and fairy tales, um, you know, often don't have... Um, the kind of rational, objective logic um, like we tend to use in our everyday lives. They have maybe what you could call like a dream logic and like things kind of come together in ways, uh, you know, I mean, just like when you're dreaming, um, everything kind of makes sense in the dream and one thing happens and then another thing happens and you kind of perceive the connection between them intuitively but then you wake up and you can't really explain to yourself why it made sense to you in the moment. And I think that's maybe kind of the sense that I get when I read some of these pieces that is that you're kind of immersed in a kind of dream logic. Um, and I think that this is something that's like a really um, active category for Elizabeth. And, you know, I mean, again, kind of struggling with mental illness you know, I mean, the, the story of the girl who ate the fish hearts, I mean, there's obviously like a very real connection there with mental illness. She gets put into a psychiatric ward. And, you know, I mean, like there's maybe this kind of suggestion that, you know, maybe there are other people who kind of live in different worlds and different logic worlds or something. And, and, and maybe, um, you know, like the reasons for their actions or something are like just as real to them. Um, but then, you know, you kind of wake up in the, you know, quote, real world, and all of a sudden you kind of can't explain these things to other people, you know? I think that's kind of uh, how I'm reading it. It's just, like, it's, it's very dreamy. Yeah, I, I catch your point. Um, but I, I think the problem with, like, you, you know, the problem with w when you dream and then you tell someone about your dream, it's usually not very interesting to the listener because they can't relate. <laughs> and that cuts to the heart of the problem with, for example, like magical realism is that I get very tired of, like uh, I've read two books by Jodorowsky who, who writes magical realism and it's just so fanciful and bizarre and there's like, I don't know, I get the sense that I'm, that someone's telling me about their dream and I, I, I just, there's nothing there for me to somehow 
grab hold, grab onto somehow. And I think maybe that's what makes Elizabeth's, um, these short pieces by her, uh, special is that, yes, there is this sort of dreamlike quality to, to them, but I feel like she's trying to make some kind of larger, more universal point that pulled me in. And as yeah, opposed I mean, I to, that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that definitely the, like the danger, um, with this kind of dream style of magical realism. Um, I mean, I'm not familiar with, uh, sorry, who is it? Uh, his name is Alexander Yotorovsky. He's a film director as well. Okay. I, I was just gifted two books by him and I read them um, in relatively quick succession. And I just remembered that I was, I, I grew sick of them very quickly <laughs> because it was just, like I said, it's like following along to someone else's dream and it's very difficult to orientate. Yeah. I mean, I think that the different, uh, I, I think that the danger uh, with something like that is that, um, yeah, like this kind of dream logic of magical realism can um, very quickly devolve into um, just ridiculous, like, like, like solipsism. I think. Yeah. Uh, just like the world is the self, and it's really hard to kind of communicate to somebody often our dreams uh, because it is so tied up in the self. Um, and you know, I mean, the sense that I get uh, with Elizabeth is. Uh, this desire to kind of escape this kind of prison of solipsism, maybe that dreams kind of trap us in and, and communicate that to somebody else, you know, because um, you ultimately have to kind of make yourself intelligible as an artist to be able to reach other people. And, you know, so, I mean, maybe, um, yeah, maybe a kind of uh, a version of this kind of writing that isn't quite as interesting is, yeah, I mean, very, turned in on the self somehow. Um, but I very much get the sense of Elizabeth uh, of just, just, just someone kind of like flowing over with energy who just like wants to kind of share her stories. Um, and, you know, so yeah, it's like on the one hand, there is this kind of dreamy um, story of the self. Yeah. But then also there's this kind of desire to both escape that and also kind of share it. Yeah, one of the things that surprised me, I'll have to admit that I haven't read any of her works, which is not in any way uh, a reflection on her as a writer, but um, a commentary on my own sort of <laughs> literary sensibility. <laughs> I've mostly read foreign works. Um, and um, But I'm, I'm working on, on reading more Icelandic fiction. But um, one of the things that struck me as well was that, you know, I, um, you know, I only know of Elizabeth through the media and... Um, she she sort of strikes me as you know a little out there um and like i think she would agree <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, but um i i was pleasantly surprised by these three brief pieces because um like i said they do have an element of of um you know being out there for lack of a better phrase but at the same time you know I, I, all of them were like you know i thought I'm a sucker for parable, and I, I thought that there was some kind of like message that she was hitting, hitting, trying to deliver, and that was very universal and very human. And especially with the um, the last piece that you read on the cigarette girl, <laughs> um, I thought I'm curious as to your reading of it. But what struck me was like um, you have some kind of protagonist who's obviously suffered um, 
and whether the spears and and the uh, the bullets are some kind of metaphor for childhood trauma, likely. Um, but then you know she gravitates towards nicotine as maybe a way of coping, and then they say, oh, you know, you you, you if you keep smoking, your face will, you know, sort of freeze in place, and you'll have this sort of terrible expression or you know <laughs> when when all of that is quite backwards when you think well maybe it's the childhood trauma that's driving the addictive habits and maybe that's why you know you you start to wear those scars publicly and and maybe that's not getting to the root of the matter yeah i mean i think that without a doubt um those things are active in that story but i mean i think you know i mean to also kind of de-intellectualize it a bit. I mean, yeah. it's just funny, right? Yeah. I mean, like, it's a funny story. And right. the way that it ends, um, you know, in the end, her face got stuck like that because she was always smoking. I mean, like, that's a punchline, right? I mean, like, the story is about childhood trauma, but it's also maybe, like, in her own way, a kind of way to overcome these things through humor. Uh, like, it doesn't always have to be uh, so dour and serious, maybe. Um, you know, I mean it is kind of hard to read this piece and totally take it seriously because I mean, it, it really has a punchline, I think. Yeah. But I mean, that's the beauty of it. It's, it's, it is funny and, and it's uh, a striking image, but also you feel like something, there's some undercurrent there that's quite serious and, and beautiful. And, yeah, and that's both. It's, it's both. both, right. Which is um, possibly one definition of good fiction. And also what I was interested um, listening to reading the interview and listening to you reading, read it back again, was that, you know, this story points to this idea of causality of um, people maybe not being as free as we'd like to believe, that they're driven in part by their circumstances and the nature of their childhood. And you can see, for my own part, I sense Elizabeth being quite empathic and sympathetic to these individuals. Um, but at the same time, I started wondering, well, what if you apply that logic to the medical profession for those people who maybe as a result of the culture or the zeitgeist or, you know, training or something just weren't capable of, of listening to her when she complained or, mm. or you know, I mean, I, I think it's yeah. interesting to, to reverse that logic and, and apply it to people that maybe we don't particularly like what do you think of that <laughs> yeah i mean if i catch your drift um certainly like a really big motif for elizabeth in her life and work uh is caretaking and uh like the kind of dynamics of both of those sides like receiving care as a child but also giving care as a parent um and i you know i think that um you know, I mean, also, yeah, I kind of gestured towards this in the piece. Um, I mentioned how uh, she used to work in a hospital at Klepspitali, but, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, with her history, she's also, you know, been a patient um, in the medical system several times. And, you know, so, like, there's this sense in which you kind of have, like, both sides there. Um, but, but, yeah, but, I mean, but at a very different level. I mean, she was working you can see that she clearly al allies herself with, you know, the uh, the underdogs and, and the bohemians and those who have... Certainly, sort of, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, so even though she was working 
sitting at the other end of the table, she was very much occupying a, a similar class or position um, as she is on the opposite end, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, she's really just in the last couple of years starting to kind of get more institutional recognition. I mean, I think that it is fair to kind of call her really an outsider artist uh, for much of her career. Um, You know, I mean, we've also talked about this kind of, uh, yeah, academic professional pipeline into the art world. um, And that is not the way that she necessarily approached it. um, But she uh, decided, I think in a way to kind of turn her life itself into a work of art, maybe. Yeah. Which is also probably a, a very nice and effective coping mechanism for dealing with trauma and, and mental illness, if you yeah. can somehow. Certainly a lesson for us all. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for the chat, Eric, and the article, which was quite eye-opening. I've, um, for my own part, gained uh, a new appreciation for Elisabeth Jökulsdóttir. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, Iceland's longest-running English-language magazine focusing on nature, politics, and community. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts.